Oh my god. Know. Is it like a yes, double treat? Yes, it is. Treat? Yes, it is. It's a double treat. So it was in the Manchester double Thank treat, you. and it was like this huge thing. I think there were, oh my god, over a thousand people. It was like I was basically like a political wedding planner, is what I refer to that job as. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of In the Aisle. As always, I'm your host, Christina. It's so great to be back after I took a short break last week, you know, partly due to the holiday, as well as in getting my first shot of the vaccine, which I am so excited about. I can't wait to be fully vaccinated soon. And for those of you who may still be on the fence about getting it, it's so worth it, in my opinion, at least. And definitely something you should try to pursue if you can, you know, sometime this month getting yourself pre-registered, you know, just a little public service announcement plug that I wanted to throw in here quickly. That clip you heard in the beginning is actually from an interview that I have today with a friend of mine from school, Nick Fulcino. And in the conversation we had, Nick had so many great stories that I can't wait for you all to listen to. And, you know, that'll be available to listen later on in the episode today. And I have to say, you know, it feels so weird to have taken a week off from this. You know, it's it's hard to believe that I've been doing this now for almost like two months or so. It's really, you know, interesting to see how much it's changed and grown since I first started doing this in January. So it's been, you know, really cool to do. And it's been great having you all along the way to cheer me on and, you know, to to participate in this podcast, which is something that I was really hoping would happen. And it's so great to see you all like, comment and message things to me about things I've talked about in the episodes. Um, you know, moving forward, I don't anticipate any more breaks, which is great. I'm kind of trying to figure out what will happen in the summertime. But, you know, as of right now, we're we're scheduled to stay on track. And I have a lot of great things you know, lined up for this month that I'll talk about at the end of the episode that we have today. For those of you who may be joining me for the first time, you know, at this point, I usually just outline what I have planned for each episode. So. As always, I will start off with a news recap going over what are some things that, you know, have happened this week and things that we need to pay attention to. From there, in normal episodes, I usually go into analysis of those things and, you know, why we should care about them. Since we have an interview this week and to keep the length of the episode in mind, I am putting that into part two. So that will be out on Sunday to hear, again, the analysis of what I've talked about this week. So instead, after the news recap will be, and then from there will be, of course, that interview I had with Nick, which you can you know listen to at that point and get to hear a little bit of what we got to talk about. And then after that, we will wrap things up for today and I can give you a little sneak review and an idea of what Sunday's episode will look like. Now that that's all out of the way, let's get right into the news recap I have for you all. So the first thing that we're going to be talking about in the news recap today has to do with student loan forgiveness again. Now, this is something that was brought up again this week. There isn't a lot of new information out there, but I still wanted to highlight it because you know student loans affects a lot of us listening here at In the Aisle, and it's definitely something to keep on your radar. So I wanted to be sure to give you an update in terms of that. So as you probably have guessed at this point, you know, talks have resurfaced in both the House and the Senate for forgiving student loans. And there was pressure now mounting from the Democrats on Biden to forgive debt. 
So some sources have said that Biden isn't considering the $50,000 forgiveness, and some say that he is. And for some context here, in case you haven't listened to previous episodes where I've talked about student loan forgiveness, the $50,000 is what a lot of Democrats want for student loan forgiveness. And Biden is hovering somewhere around the $10,000 mark in terms of what he's willing to forgive. Now, it is also worth pointing out here, too, as a recap, that Biden isn't against the $50,000 if if Congress decides to pass that as a relief amount, but he himself does not want to write that off in an executive order because he feels like he does not have the authority to do so. And, you know, based on what we've talked about in the past on this podcast and from what I've read from sources, even though I've seen it both ways, it is likely that Biden still is not on board with the 50000 And again, is trying to get Congress to do this themselves instead. And again, he'd be happy to sign a bill if it did come down to $50,000, you know, that they agreed on for forgiveness. The important reason why we want to bring it up today is that there is now a growing likelihood that forgiveness is coming. And there's, again, a lot of pressure the Democrats are putting on Biden. So definitely something we're going to want to talk about again in the analysis. Moving on, we're going to be talking about now the uh, scandal that's been surrounding Representative Gates of Florida. Now, if you don't know who he is or haven't heard of like him yet this week, I'm going to be a little surprised just because it has been dominating the news cycle so much. Um, and, you know, I'm going to be sure to save my opinions for him in this case, you know, in the analysis. Just it's coming. I'm sure you can already kind of predict what I'm, the direction I'm going to take that in. But I'm you know, just giving you a heads up. It's going to be very factual what I'm going to give to you next. Yeah, but again, he's a uh, member of the House from Florida in Congress, and he's been accused of having relations with a 17-year-old girl. Now, in the terms of relations, I mean, it's it's a very vague term. Um, doing more research, I found that there are even you know, some allegations of sex trafficking that he's been involved with, as well as like sexual harassment, um, sexual misconduct, and even statutory rape, if it's true that he, again, had relations with a seven, an underage girl, a 17-year-old girl. And he's also been accused of showing members of Congress pictures of him with nude women on his phone. Um, and there's also rumors flying around that he's a sugar daddy to many underage girls as well. I mean, as you can probably guess or have seen this week, he's also denied every allegation that's been put against him. And he even spoke with Tucker Carlson on Fox last week about this. And he's been on the news a lot, having interviews, again, denying all the allegations. That Tucker Carlson interview is, you know, extremely interesting. It's worth watching for the last, like, few minutes of it. Like, it was just a very awkward, uncomfortable thing. And, you know, I'm going to, again, save that for, for the analysis. But, you know, if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend because, yeah, again, it was just a interesting, interesting way to end an interview, to say the least. I'll just leave it at that for now. The other thing you need to know about him is that he's an avid Trump supporter. And it is important to point this out because it will come into the analysis later on. And there's also rumors now as of Wednesday that he sought a preemptive pardon from Trump while Trump was still in office and was hoping, again, to be um, acquitted of his crimes that he claims that he did not commit and is now he being investigated for his transgressions that I listed previously. So again, a lot to unpack, a lot we're going to be talking about in the analysis. The last thing we're going to talk about in the news recap today has to do with legislation surrounding trans individuals in this country. So on one hand, you had Arkansas pass transphobic legislation, and then you had 
Virginia who passed trans-friendly legislation this week. So it's very interesting to see that those two getting done in the same week from two southern states. So again, we're going to be talking about that in the analysis for sure. Let's start with Arkansas. So again, Arkansas allowed for transphobic legislation to be passed this week. The SAFE Act is what got through their state legislature, and it's basically designed to stop people under the age of 18 from seeking gender-affirming treatments such as hormone blockers. And the argument in favor of that is that it's supposed to, um, quote-unquote, protect kids from themselves in making the wrong decisions about their own bodies. And a lot of lawmakers in Arkansas feel like those kids are too young to be able to decide to be um, transitioning if that's what they want to do. It's really important to point out here that Governor Hutchinson, um, who is a Republican in Arkansas, you know, he's the governor of Arkansas, I should say, he did veto the bill earlier this week, saying that it was a cultural attack that goes too far against the citizens of Arkansas, specifically um, the youth of Arkansas. But as we know, how a, b- a bill becomes a law now, even if there is a veto, if there's enough support in the state legislature, you know, it can be overridden, that veto, which is exactly what happened. And the state legislature is re- controlled by um, con- conservatives, um, and those are the ones who, you know, were in favor of the SAFE Act. And so they got enough votes from there to be able to, again, override that veto in order to make it a law. Now, let's move on to Virginia next, because as I said, they actually passed legislation this week that was trans-friendly. Um, so Virginia's, through their state legislature, passed a law to ban gay and trans panic as a form of self-defense. Now, for those of you who don't know, it is legal in many parts of this country to, again, claim gay and trans panic as a matter of self-defense um, in a trial or in court or really just in any way of defense when talking about you know harming members of the gay or trans community. Basically, what people do, if you don't know, is they'll tend to attack gay or trans people, you know, claiming that they're bothering them, like they're offensive to them, you know, hurting their way of life and scare them and will attack them. You know, a lot of the times this unfortunately does end in the death of the person who is attacked. And, you know, up until this point in a lot of states like in Virginia, you know, that was still fully legal. So this legislation is something that was passed, you know, to ban that. And Virginia has now become the 12th state to ban gay and trans panic, again, as a form of self-defense in many court cases. The cool part of the story is that, you know, Virginia's only trans lawmaker, Danica Rome, was actually the one who started the process for this bill. And it was something that was brought to her attention by one of her constituents, actually, which is, this is a fun fact, who, you know, wanted to see this legislation get passed and didn't know how to start to go about that. And Danica, you know, really took that legislation and ran with it and was able to really push to get this done. So, you know, well done, Danica, for for getting that passed or helping to get that passed, I should say. And now moving forward, the gay and trans panic, you know, self-defense thing will be seen as a hate crime, which is really important, you know, for for protecting members of the the gay and trans community, especially, you know, not, not just in the state of Virginia, but, you know, for the whole country, which, of course, we'll be talking about in the analysis in part two. So that wraps up our news recap today. Just a reminder, the analysis for the weeks that I have interviews uh, will always be pushed to part two. So that's where you can expect to hear, you know, the the stuff I have to say about you know, each thing we went over this week in detail and you'll be able to hear the analysis for that. 
So now we will be moving on to my Democracy Deep Dive, otherwise known as D-Cubed segment, where where we'll be talking about presidential pardons, as it's something that was brought up in Representative Gates' scandal that happened this week. All right, so moving on to D-Cubed, what I thought we could talk about today is presidential pardons, because that is something that I actually, you know, we saw come up with, you know, what's happening with Representative Gates. And there are actually a lot of things that do happen with pardons that I think are really important to notice. And it's also something that I brought up, you know, I think believe it was my first episode of this podcast, talking about all the pardons that Trump pursued and got through in his last few days of office. Um, so I'm sure this is going to be brought up again, which is why I think it's really important to start talking about the pardons now. So you can be aware in case it does come up in Representative Gates' case or, you know, with former President Trump in the future. Now, I'm sure most of you already have an idea of like what a presidential pardon is or, or may already f- know fully of what it is. But for recap purposes, is basically a power that the president has to forgive um, citizens of this country of, you know, any federal crime that they've committed. So, you know, for example, it would be more of like a white collar crime, I'd say. Um, it definitely wouldn't be something like with like a homicide. Like definitely the president does not have the power to, to forgive somebody for, for doing that. And the pardoning power that the president has actually comes from Article 2 in the Constitution under the Pardon Clause. And it's officially known as the Pardon of Clemency Power. So if you're ever like you know, in your spare time, if you're ever reading the Constitution, which I doubt any of you are, <laughs> but I just still worth wanting to point out the name of it in case you do come across it. If you do have to do it for like a class or somebody's talking about it, it's important to know where it is in the Constitution. And, um, you know, as I said, it can be issued to pardon somebody from a federal crime. It's important to note, though, that pardons cannot be issued for impeachment cases for people who have been tried and convicted by Congress. So, for example, If President Trump had gotten convicted by the Senate when he was on either of his impeachment trials that he had in the past, President Biden couldn't go and forgive him for those crimes because that is something that Congress has decided that they committed those, the act, or in Trump's case, he committed the act and, you know, has to deal with the consequences of that. And it's also important to note that presidents don't really have a cap on how many pardons they can give while in office. Um, you know, it's it's something that it's expected that the presidents don't abuse this power. And, you know, typically we don't see that. Um, I will say Trump is the president who's had the most pardons in history. And a lot of those happened during his last few weeks of office. It was just kind of pardoning people left and right. And if you recall, one of those people was Little Wayne, as I mentioned in like my first podcast episode, just as a fun fact to remind you all in case you forgot that. You know, the last thing I'll really talk about today, this would be a definitely a shorter D-cubed than we've had in the past, is that there are actually five different types of presidential pardons, which is something that I honestly didn't know before researching this, so it was kind of cool to learn that. I will say the last pardon is kind of, there's some de- debate about whether or not it's constitutional, um, but I thought I'd still throw it in there because I'm sure a lot of you were going to honestly think of it anyway, so I wanted to address it for you all, um, you know, in Okay, so the first type of pardon is what we call a full pardon. Um, And this is something the president can do to forgive somebody of their federal crime or wrongdoings and restore any civil rights lost. So, for example, um, a lot of the times when people are convicted of crimes, they lose the right to vote in like a lot of other civil rights. So if a president is issuing a full pardon, 
then not only are the people exonerated of their crimes, um, they also get their civil rights back, like being able to vote. The second type of pardon is what we call amnesty. And it's honestly the same exact thing as a full pardon, except for it is given to groups of people. So like, for example, if you had, let's say, a group of um, Democratic senators who were involved in some political scandal, you know, instead of issuing pardons for each of them individually, a president can just give it to them as a group if they've all committed the same crimes and, you know, make sure that they get. The third type of pardon is something we call a commutation. And this basically um, is the president gives the president the power to reduce a sentence from a federal court or also give them the power to waive fines on somebody for their wrongdoings. So president in this case, you know, does still allow for some punishment to take place for somebody, you know, committing the crimes that they did. But, you know, it also allows them to kind of like decide for themselves sort of how badly of a punishment the person deserves. Um, And a lot of the times with white collar crimes and cases, there are fines that people have to pay. So again, that also gives the president the power to waive those in case, you know, they decide that the person shouldn't have to pay like thousands of dollars in, in fines for the crimes they've committed. The fourth type of pardon is something called a preemptive pardon. And this is what we were talking about in the news recap with Representative Gates, because he's been accused of you know going to Trump for a preemptive pardon while Trump was still in office. And this is also something that, you know, The most famous one I think that you would know would be with President Nixon. So basically, a preemptive pardon exonerates anybody of their crimes before a trial even happens. And there's a lot of controversy that surrounds preemptive pardons because it's kind of weird where, you know, somebody commits a crime, right? Which is exactly what happened with Nixon. I mean, at that point, everyone knew he was guilty. (laughs) There was no question about whether or not he committed those crimes, like with Watergate. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where you don't even have to go on trial and the president can just you know, decide ahead of time that they're, they're not going to have to deal with that and have to go through, you know, being on trial for their crimes, if that makes sense. This is one that can be abused, probably the worst out of all of them. Maybe the fifth one I'm going into next, being able to do that preemptively is really risky and not something we see a lot of presidents do, um, you know, within this country's history in terms of that. And the last one that I'll go over today, which is the one I said is some debate surrounding it is what we call a self-pardon. So in this case, it would be the president would have the power to exonerate themselves from any crimes they've committed in office. Now, there is some debate about whether or not this is constitutional. And, you know, I honestly did a lot of research on this. Some people argue that it is okay, and other people have argued that it isn't. You know, whether or not it's morally correct is, I think everyone kind of agrees in the research I saw that it isn't okay for a president to excuse themselves. And it is something that, you know, we could have seen presidents in in even our lifetime do if they've committed crimes, um, yet we haven't seen that. So, you know, in my opinion, I feel like it really is unconstitutional, though I'm not an expert and feel free if you want to do your own research on this afterwards to, to look into this. But again, there's some debate that a president does have the power to um, forgive themselves of crimes they've committed while, um, you know, either being in office as president or before their time as president. And so there you have it. And that's all you really need to know about presidential pardons. Um, It's something that we, again, will probably hear about in the news about things that have happened in the past. I also don't foresee Biden doing this with anybody anytime soon. Um, It's typically, again, something that happens at the end of a president's 
you know, term or time in office, I should say. So, you know, definitely something you can keep a lookout, but it's always good to have this information now in case, again, it does come up back in the news cycle, especially with Representative Gates. Now let's get to the portion of this episode I'm sure you all have been waiting for the most. It is, of course, my interview with Nick. And again, you can expect, you know, part two of our conversation to come out in Sunday's episode. But I know you guys are going to enjoy what we talked about today. Nick had some really cool stories. Can't wait for you all to listen. So without further ado, here is the conversation I got to have with Nick. Today's guest on In the Isle is actually somebody who I got to know really well at CNES and honestly probably one of the smartest students in the politics department, if I do say so myself. Um, He's also somebody who I I truly cannot wait for you all to get to know today. And so, Nick, whenever you're ready, please take it away. Yeah, happy to join. Thank you for flattering my (laughs) academic record. I appreciate it. At least I can Um, Yeah, so I'm really excited to get into it. Right now, I am a finance assistant for Off the Sidelines PAC, which is uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand's leadership PAC. And we raise money to help elect women running for Congress and some men who share our values. And so I've been doing that since January 2020, moved down to D.C., And before that, I had worked on the senator's presidential campaign in New Hampshire. I was a regional organizing director. So I was in charge of Nashua, New Hampshire, right on the Massachusetts border, up to Manchester, basically. Oversaw that organizing for her campaign in that part of the state. And then afterwards, when she ended her bid, I was the finance director for Manchester, New Hampshire Mayor Joyce Craig. And after her decisive victory. I was in charge of planning her inaugural ball. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Nick. And honestly, I forgot about Mayor Joyce Craig for a hot second. I forgot that you were involved in that. So it's really awesome throwing that in there as well. Joyce was such a joy to work for. And the inauguration was really cool to plan. It was the largest inauguration in New Hampshire, which was really exciting and very fun. And it was a great time. And then I also am just such a believer in local politics and really feel like that's where a lot of the difference is made. Mm -hmm. So anyone thinking about people's lives. So I'm a big proponent of local races. I managed my state representatives in Connecticut's campaign twice, convinced them to run. We flipped a district that had been Republican for the last 12 years. So I am a huge believer in the local level. Yeah, I honestly can't agree with you more there. And it's something that other people like on this podcast we've talked about because people don't realize that like all politics is local, but like local government in itself is can be honestly really powerful and a great avenue for people to go down if they want to get involved with that. Um, so, I mean, that honestly leads me to my first question for you would be like, is that kind of what drew you into politics initially? Because I know you've you've been involved in, I believe, since high school, correct? Yeah, I've always loved politics. When I was in first grade, my parents got me a book with all the president's pictures in it. And I decided that I wanted my picture in a book one day. (laughs) And so I just started reading everything I could and learning about the presidency and American history. And in 2008, so when McCain and Obama were running, my uh, mother nature from my Boy Scout camp was running for state representative. 
and I went door to door with her. She lost by 110 votes. That was super upsetting, but also super eye-opening and a really cool experience to see politics at the local level. She was like so nice for letting me just tag along. I would go door knocking with her and see what she did. And yeah, so that was really cool and kind of solidify that this is what I wanted to do. And then my first paid job in politics was as field director for my history teacher who ran it for that same state rep seat and we finally won it and flipped it. So that was like really cool and rewarding. My first internship was in Nashville, Tennessee. And I went there the summer before I started at St. Anselm and was a canvasser. And I was basically a field organizer, but it was only an internship and was recruiting volunteers, calling voters. And it was all intensive. I mean, seven days a week. I think we got the 4th of July off and like one other day and worked so many hours. But that was where I really learned everything about campaigns. That's so cool. And honestly, like I had no idea that you you went to Tennessee before like going to St. A's to do that. That's mm-hmm. really awesome. Um, so what would you say like out of that was like the most formative like part, like when you're like dealing with campaigns, because you are somebody mm-hmm. I would say who has had like one of probably the most with campaign experience that I've had so far on the podcast. Mm-hmm. There are so many, so many different things. I think right now I'm, I'm in finance and fundraising, which is not where I expected to end up. But when I was there in Tennessee, knocking on so many doors and learning so much about the issues facing Nashville, re- you know, I kind of went there to just get the job experience. But while I was there, I learned a lot about the city and the race and the candidates. I worked for a man named Bill Freeman. He's a businessman. And I was just so bought in and being able to talk through issues with voters one-on-one and help them understand why I was believing in Bill and supporting him was huge for me. And there's one anecdote I like to tell of, it wasn't me, it was one of my, one of the other interns. I feel like her name was Jordan. And she was going up, knocking on this door, and they had a lawn sign in their yard for one of our opponents. His name was Howard Gentry. And she was like, I'm knocking on the door anyway. So she knocked on the door. She was like, I see you're supporting Howard Gentry, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about why I still think Bill Freeman's the best choice. And they talked for about 20 minutes on the chairs in his porch. And he said, you know what? Take my Gentry sign and give me a Freeman one. (laughs) And totally turned around. And so that's like the power of the door-to-door canvassing. And I think, you know, you look at where Democrats are successful and it's where we're able to be on the ground. I mean, the story of Georgia is just so remarkable Mm -hmm. to me. And, you know, that's the kind of organizing that eventually I'd love to see happening in all 50 states. Yeah, I, I honestly can't agree with you more. And it's honestly something so funny. My my first guest on the show, Hannah, um, she mentioned the same thing about how like there's the potential that we can get that power in Georgia in all 50 states at some point. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Nick, I have no doubt that you're definitely going to be one of the people helping to lead that. I feel like you have Thank the fire. You, you definitely, <laughs> definitely have the will and the way to do it. So hopefully well, that you can help get that going in the future. And it starts at the local level. And one of the things that I can't emphasize enough is just being in my Pomfret, Connecticut, where I grew up and running that race for state representative. I mean, this was a seat that, you know, the Republican won it by 40 votes in 2004 and then never gave it up. And when he finally retired is when it was open in 2016, 
and it's a re- it's farm country. Like people think Connecticut, they always think of Greenwich, but where I live, mm-hmm. it's it's really rural. And you know, these are the kind of voters that I think you always hear the think pieces that the Democrats lost. And when I was there and like talking to people about the issues on their mind, you know, obviously they were concerned about I don't want Democrats raising my taxes, etc. But it just takes having a conversation. And I think we can get back to that and really see the results. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work. It Mm -hmm. takes a lot of manpower. It takes a lot of vision. But I think, you know, it's the only way to win, especially when you look at how Republicans are responding with some Republican legislatures passing, you know, these voter suppression bills. You know, the only way to overcome that is by on the ground organizing. Yeah, that's so true. And I think, honestly, what you just said, like, thank you for sharing that, because I, I think it honestly just speaks volumes to what we're seeing across the country today, where, like, there's such such a disconnect between people. And sometimes, truly, all it takes is, like, just having a conversation with one another to, like, begin to understand and try to, like, share facts and, like, spread information in that way in terms of candidates. And I think that's the best way, honestly, to combat a lot of, like, the partisanship and, like, the misinformation that we do have today. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize, like you said, it truly does start local like i think we all look to the federal government and have it expect that to trickle down i personally i think it's the opposite you have to start at the lower level and hope it kind of like works its way up which yeah. um it's gonna be hard to get there but i think it is something that we could eventually see and have a lot of power with in the future and i want to just jump in really quickly because i think you yeah. raised a great point about the rise of disinformation and this is another reason why the on the ground organizing is so important because I remember having a conversation, it was 2016 on the race for state rep, and I knocked on a door and it was a strong Republican voter who told me he was never voting for a Democrat ever. And I went to leave, but he clearly wanted to engage me in conversation. So I talked through the issues with him. He kept hitting on the fact that Pat, who's the candidate I was working for, was going to go to Hartford and raise his taxes. And I kept saying, first of all, the taxes in Connecticut have not been raised on people below whatever income level it was for quite a while. Second of all, like this is where Pat is on the issue. He's run, a, he's drafted a budget for the fire district, blah, 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 blah. And just really point by point explaining like, you know, the, <laughs> the stereotype of tax and spend liberals like isn't really applicable to this particular candidate. And he just wanted to buy it. And so I think, you know, it's really disheartening that yeah. you can't, even have conversations like you're not working from the same reality when you're having a conversation with some people right. and that is what makes it hard but i don't know the solution to that that's way above my head and my pay grade but i hope someone <laughs> figures it out honestly same like i think we all are kind of hoping that someone steps up at some point so if you're listening and you feel like you have the drive feel free to take it on i know nick and i would be very appreciative of you if you did but yeah thank you thank you so much for for sharing that nick the thing that I kind of wanted to uh, actually, we'll talk about Joyce Craig in a second, because I do actually want to ask you some questions about that, since some people who may not be from Massachusetts and New Hampshire might not realize how amazing of a race that was mm-hmm. and how great that Joyce was um, like being elected to be mayor of Manchester. Mm-hmm. But I have to ask before, what would you say is your craziest campaign experience? Because I feel like people don't realize how like insane campaigns get and sometimes even just like talking to voters it could just be so interesting yeah okay so this isn't necessarily the craziest but this is like a guide like north star for me in politics 
So there's this woman, Lily Grubbs, whom I met in Nashville. It was near the end of the campaign. I, I mean, literally, actually, it was the night before election day. Like, it was the end of the campaign. And <laughs> so, and it's, she's my last door. The sun is starting to set. She's my last door in my pocket. I knock on her door. She comes and answers it. And I introduce myself. I'm working for Bill Freeman for mayor. And I wanted to see if Bill could count on her vote. So while I'm trying to give my pitch, she's like looking out. There's furniture on her front lawn. She's like, whose furniture is that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's your lawn, not mine. (laughs) She's very distracted. She's talking about all these different things. She watched the debate. She was really impressed with one particular candidate. She wrote his name down on an envelope. And that's who she's voting for. And she's going to go get it. And I say, okay. And she goes and gets the envelope. And she says, Bill Freeman. I was like, that's who I'm working for. That's perfect. Thank you. She starts talking. I always vote Democratic. My family lost everything uh, during the Great Depression. We had a tobacco farm. FDR, like, saved our family, saved our farm ever since I've only voted for Democrats, blah, blah, blah. And really moving, really touching. I said, blah, blah, blah. But, like... In the moment, I was like very much enjoying this conversation. <laughs> she was so sweet. She was kind of spacey. And I thank her for the, her time. And I start to walk away. And for some reason, it just popped in my head. And I turned around and I was like, Lily, do you have a way to get to the polls tomorrow? And she was 101. I don't remember if I mentioned that. And oh, wow. She goes, you know, I actually don't think I do now that you say it because I don't drive anymore. My daughters have to work and where I go to vote isn't like convenient for them to pick me up. And so I said, I will figure out how to get you a ride to the polls. So I call my boss and he goes, tell her to go online and fill out the survey and we'll send someone. And I'm like, Alex, the woman is 101. (laughs) Like she was a little spacey during our conversation. I don't think that is the most effective way to get out of the polls. Alex goes, well, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know, and he was busy. It was a massive campaign. Things were really close at the end, whatever. So I go over his head, which I, in theory, shouldn't have done. But I go to our GOTV get out the vote director. (laughs) I'm like, GP, um, there's this woman, Lily Grubbs. I'm like telling the whole story of how great she was in the conversation and um, this woman, Jennifer Buck Wallace, who was our something high up in the campaign was there. And he's like, give me her number. I will call and get her to the polls. And election day, I was, I'm up at 4.30 in the morning. It's dark. It's raining. It's pouring. The whole day is pouring. Everyone I'm talking to is mad because they just want the campaign to be over. They don't want people knocking on their doors still. And it's like 3.30. And I get a text from GP that says, Lily Grubbs just cast her ballot. And that made like everything worth it. Oh my God. Wow. What a beautiful story. I honestly did not think that's what the direction was going to go in Nick, to be honest with you. Like I thought she was going to come out of her house with the envelope with like, not, <laughs> like not his bill's name on it. And I was expecting you to like have to convince her, but no, that is so was, sweet. In, yeah, um, it was so good. Yeah. And you know, I can tell you crazy stories about, you know, that was the summer they legalized gay marriage and it was the South and there was a lot of tension over that and on at some doors I knocked on, but like for every time I got yelled at about something, like the one moment getting Lily, like literally she would not have voted if not for me was enough. Like that made up for all of it. So that's the one I will choose to tell. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's awesome. And I think that honestly speaks to everybody who has been in campaigns because they're so long and so hard. But you know, it really makes it worth it when like you if you literally can just like help one person or like talk to one person and change their mind, like it literally makes it worth yeah. it for everybody. So that is awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, yeah, let's let's now jump to to Joyce Craig and Absolutely. before we get into the main topic, what we want to talk about today. Um I would just love to hear more about like your experience with that. And for those of you who aren't in the New England area, um, the reason why Joyce Craig is like such a big deal is that she's the first female mayor of the city of Manchester. And while Manchester isn't the capital of um, New Hampshire, it's the biggest city. And so it was really big deal when she got elected and it was so cool. So again, Nick, I'd love to hear more about like that whole experience. you Yeah. Had. And the other part of it that's important is New Hampshire being the first in the nation primary the Manchester mayoral mm -hmm. race gets a lot of attention. And like when Joyce won for the first time in 2017, MSNBC was there, like CNN was there. I mean, it just gets a lot of attention because it's kind of seen as a bellwether. So anywho, yeah. I was working on Joyce's reelection. I came in near the end of the campaign. They needed a new finance director. And so I took it on and knew nothing about finance. Tired because... So that was like literally the day after Senator Gillibrand dropped out of the presidential race and this job was open. My boss on Senator Gillibrand's campaign had, had been Joyce's finance director in the past and was like, they need someone. I know you don't know finance, but I will teach you the finance parts. You're the perfect person otherwise. So thrown in, I mean, it was September, the election was in November, feet first, like no chance to learn anything, but had to do it really quickly, had to raise a lot of money. We posted, I believe the biggest fundraising quarter in Manchester history about a month after I got on. Very exciting. It's not what I expected to be doing, but it was so much fun. That's so cool. And tell me, like, what was it like, like, when you saw her win? Like, what, like, the feelings there? Like, I mean, must have been nice to see, like, everybody's hard work pay off. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this. I never really had <laughs> a doubt. You know, I am a very nervous person when it comes to campaigns. I always go into election night thinking, like, the campaign I'm working on is going to lose. So 2016 and 2018, when I was managing Pat's races... I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we did it. I'm sorry. I wish I had done more. Blah, 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 blah. He ended up winning by the biggest margin a Democrat in the district has ever gotten. <laughs> so, well, like, okay. that's just who I am. But I really never had a doubt that Joyce would come out on top. One, that speaks to her record as a mayor. But two, I think, like, when it comes to how I felt that night, like, it was so rewarding. The campaign was exhausting. Um, and it, it was a blast. It was so nice to see. We were at the Puritan. It was like this whole thing. She pulled us all up on stage. She was very nice. And then we were at a party celebrating. And it was probably, I don't know, two weeks later. And she's like, I need you to do my inauguration. And convinced me to do it. And then that was so much fun. That was like this massive ball in the Radisson. Wow. Right? Or it's not the Radisson anymore, right? What is it? Oh I don't my even God. know. Is it like a yes, double treat? Yes, it is. It's a double treat. <laughs> so it was in the Manchester double Thank treat. You. And it was like this huge thing. I think there were, oh my God, over a thousand people. It was like, I was basically like a political wedding planner is what I refer to that job as. <laughs> uh -huh. 
I love it. That's oh my god! Wow, that is the perfect analogy. That's so cool. Yeah, it, that's that's all. Honestly, really great to hear, Nick. And honestly, I didn't have a doubt in my mind either that she was going to win. There's just like something about her. Like I've met her when she was first starting her her mm-hmm. campaign, and I was just like, you know what? She's got it. Like she just is so passionate yeah. about the city, and I think that she's been crushing it so far. I hope she continues to crush it down the line. Um, but yeah, it's really cool that you got to be a part of that, and um you know, you get to share that with us today. So thank you so much for that. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Nick. Um, In part two, we will be talking about D.C. and its potential to become a state. Um, Since Nick lives in D.C., you know, had a lot to say about it and had some really good insights that I honestly didn't even think of, you know, and something that Nick notices and sees um, as somebody who lives in D.C., So again, you can hear that um, for the second part of this episode that will be out on Sunday. Moving forward, what you can expect for the rest of this month. So if you recall my last episode, I promised the little surprises here and there in case I didn't actually release anything Easter weekend. So I'm still, you know, planning on doing that. There are two that are currently lined up that I'm not going to divulge yet because we're still ironing out the details to be completely honest about some of them. But the little tip that I can give you is that I'm referring to this as Anselm April and I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm sure you'll be able to figure out at some point why I am calling this Anselm April. And for those of you who didn't know um, already, My school that I graduated from this past May was called St. Anselm College. So we'll just throw that little, you know, tip in there and see if you can try to figure out what it is I have planned for this month. And the other thing I have planned is going to remain a complete surprise until, again, those details are ironed out. But I promise you it'll be worth it. And I'm really excited about it. And it's something that I have never done before with this podcast or in general. So it will be really cool if I'm able to pull it off. And that's why I'm keeping the secret until I'm able to do so. <laughs> and then if not, then, you know, maybe I'll I'll share that in like a year's time or something. I don't know what I was planning on doing. As always, feel free to share this podcast with friends, like, subscribe, the whole deal. You know, definitely feel free to follow um, this podcast at In the Isle on Instagram. Um, you'll see updates with that and, you know, interact with this a little bit more. I... Have said in the past, and I'm still choosing to do this in the future. Um, I really want to interact with you all more on that because I feel like that's a really fun way to to hear your feedback and hear what you have to say about you know things I've talked about in the show. So definitely, always feel free to shoot me a message or something of that nature, or comment on a post. I would love to hear from you all more. The last thing that I want to throw in here is you know if you are somebody who knows of somebody who you think would be a really great guest to have on this podcast, you know. By all means, please feel free to let me know. I would love to hear about people that you want to see on this podcast as well, as much as I love my friends and my inner circle. I would also love to meet new people and, you know, get to hear from more people down the line, different experiences that they've had. So definitely feel free to shoot me a DM at In the Isle Podcast on Instagram if you have anybody um, in your life that you love for me to get a chance to talk to and, you know, share with everybody else. As always, I've been your host, Christina. It's been an absolute pleasure making this podcast for you all. And I can't wait for you to all join me next time in the aisle. Take care, everybody. Have a good weekend.